All right. When uh, Tyler first told me we're doing uh, Sermon on the Mount, I was really excited, and he asked me to pick a couple of uh, couple of dates to preach, and I was really excited about this passage that we're doing today. So last week we kind of touched on uh, the Beatitudes, and we're kind of which which is kind of just the intro to the Sermon on the Mount, and we're kind of tidying up that intro today with what we're discussing. So we're looking at uh, verses um, 13 through 16, and which, which talks about salt and light. And the reason I was excited about preaching on that was because I thought, you know, this has always been something that just hasn't really clicked with me. This has always been something that I just didn't quite get, and we're going to get into a discussion of why that was for me a little later on. So I was excited to really kind of dig into this and really understand what Jesus meant when he was talking about being salt and light. But one of the things that I just want to um, kind of re-emphasize before we get started, and, and this is about the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, just not what we're talking about today, but the Sermon on the Mount is really not meant to be looked at by itself, and it's not meant to be this standalone passage that is like just a guide for everybody's life. When we look at it that way, it's a huge misunderstanding of what is happening in the Bible. So it is an incredibly powerful speech that Jesus gives that is like maybe one of the most powerful passages in the Bible on right living, we could call it, on godly living, on good living. But if we just look at it as a passage on good living we are missing out on the most important aspect of the Word of God. And so this is, this is not meant to transform us. This is not meant to be a list of rules that we need to follow in order to gain access to God. This is not meant to be that, that checkbox that goes, if I hit all of these points, then God is going to be happy with me. God is going to be pleased with me. That is not what the Sermon on the Mount is. Our pathway to God was never meant, even in the Old Testament when the law was given, it was never meant to be, do these good things and God will be pleased with you. We were always asked to approach God through faith. And that's one of the points that God makes about uh, Abraham is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So even in the Old Testament, even though there's this list of rules, there's the Ten Commandments, there's all these other laws, 613 other laws, which feels overwhelming in the Old Testament, uh, that law, despite it being a good thing, was never meant it was never designed to be the pathway to God. Faith in God was always that pathway. And so when Jesus came, Jesus said, and, and I'm, I'm sneaking into next week's topic a little bit, but I just want to touch on it because it's, I think it's really important as we deal with, with our passage today. But uh, Jesus says, I came to fulfill the law so that, so that you don't have to because you can't. So the problem with the law was that it was a, a, a perfect line and we were asked to trace that line, and we just can't. So there's nothing wrong with the line. The law is perfect and good. We just can't follow it. We just can't do it. It's impossible. And the harder we try, the more we're going to find that we fail over and over and over again. And so rules is never how God wants us to approach him. So Jesus came and said, I'm going to fulfill the law for you. I'm going to die, and I'm going to come back to life. And through faith in me, you are going to be able to have access to God. Through my perfect following of the law, through Jesus' perfection, we have access to God. And so that's really important as we move forward in this. And there's a, there's a quote from Jonathan Pennington who uh, has a lot of really good things to say uh, about this. But what Jonathan Pennington says, he says, nearly everything Jesus teaches in the sermon is given fuller explanation elsewhere in the gospel. So to read this portion divorced from that context 
is to cut oneself off from wise reading. Moreover, the overall context for the sermon is one in which the very teacher of the sermon goes on to die and rise again for those who cannot possibly fulfill its commands and ideals themselves. So I really like this quote because he agrees with me. Um, but but the, he does a much better job of summarizing it than, than, than I did. So as we move forward into our verse, it's really important that, that we're reading the words of the Sermon on the Mount, not as this rule set to follow, not as like uh, a way for me to point out all the ways in my life that I'm failing, but it is, it is a good thing that, that Jesus is doing. He's kind of reframing the Old Testament law in a lot of ways. He's radicalizing it. He's making it more intense and pointing us uh, towards what the ultimate purpose of the law was for our hearts to be transformed first through faith and then through the law, not the law first. So, um, when we look at our passage thus far, we've looked at the Beatitudes. Uh, the Beatitudes go on, they say, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. And then it goes on in verse 11. And so, in the beginning, Jesus, it says that Jesus is doing this to his disciples. And there's crowds that come and gather around as well. But the, the, the main the pointed conversation here seems to be pointed towards the disciples with Jesus knowing that there's other listeners there, but he's teaching his disciples. And so you can almost see at this point, after, after sharing the uh, Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. I can almost see Jesus like kind of like zeroing in, like, look at me. You're going to be blessed when others persecute you and revile you. And he goes on to say in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm just at the tail end of a cold, and my voice is just a little bit cranky, so I'm probably going to be drinking lots of water. I apologize. So uh, there's a shift in the, the Beatitudes. So Jesus, all through the Beatitudes, is saying, um, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And then he says, blessed are you. He focuses, his blessed are you. And he really zeroes this message in on them. And then he goes into verse 13, which is the focus of our message this morning. So we're going to read through this passage together. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Uh, that God would lead us and teach us. Uh, my God, I want to thank you for this passage. I want to thank you for the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, this good thing that you have presented. May we never see it as uh, a rule set um, to bring us to you. Uh, we want to recognize the unconditional love that you have for us uh, and the free offer of salvation that's been given to us. So teach us what, your pa what, what, your, what this passage really means uh, and guide us and may this uh, resonate deeply in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, uh, this first section, uh, Matthew chapter 13, we, I want to deal with this, and this is sort of that tricky passage that I never really understood. Uh, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? So Jesus uses a lot of parables. Jesus uses a lot of imagery in the Bible when he's teaching. And oftentimes there's clear um, there, there's clear metaphors that he's using. He's like it's very easy to like go, okay, this metaphor means this, this thing that he's talking about, this imagery is referring to this. And with salt, it's not super clear. And this is, the, this is the struggle that I had is because I would read different commentators and different commentators would kind of point out different things that salt meant. So some people said, well, it's meant as a preservative. And so he's talking about how uh, Christians are supposed to like preserve the word of God in the world. And, and others would say, well, salt means, salt was used for flavoring. And so we're supposed to flavor uh, the world with the gospel. And, and everyone sort of had this different idea of what it was. And we can look in the Bible and find all these different uses of the word salt. So in Mark chapter 9 and verse 50, it says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And so does salt mean to be peaceful? Colossians 4 verse 5 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Does that mean that salt represents graciousness? And then there's all kinds of imagery of salt in the Old Testament, but in 2 Chronicles 13 verse 5, it says, ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over uh, to Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? And so salt in the Old Testament, when it was used in that way, was used to demonstrate friendship between individuals, that there was this covenant and this promise and this relationship between them. And so we look at all these things and like, which one did Jesus mean? And every person in that crowd who's listening, depending on what their job was or depending on what their relationship with salt was, is probably like, this is what it means to me, this is what it means to me. So it's really difficult to kind of nail down exactly what he meant, but there are some really, really great ideas about how this represents um, the disciples and Jesus fulfilling uh, a lot of the covenant in the Old Testament, a lot of the promises in the Old Testament about a coming light, about this coming friendship between God and man uh, and what Christ was going to do. And there's some really great ideas there. Um, but I think the most helpful thing for us is at that time, salt was an incredibly helpful substance. It was incredibly valuable uh, for many different things. And I think that that's just a great way to think about what salt is, that it's something that's valuable, that it's something that's useful. And so when Jesus says, you are the salt of the world, he's kind of saying, be useful and valuable um, to those that you're living with. And I think that that's a really great way for us to simplify what it's talking about. And then it goes on to say uh, in this verse, he says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Uh, here's why I really wanted to emphasize why the Sermon on the Mount shouldn't be isolated on its own. We cannot look at it as, as, as a rule set because it's really easy to get to this verse and read it and go, oh, if I'm not good enough, if I don't try hard enough, I'm going to be thrown out. And that's not what the gospel says. That's not what is happening here. This Sermon on the Mount, remember, he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to Jesus' followers. He's talking to people who have already been transformed through faith. Right? So this, the message of this is not that do good or you're out. Okay? What Jesus is actually saying here, he's kind of making a joke. Uh, he's kind of, there probably would have been like a weird chuckle in the crowd from people that it's like if salt lost its saltiness, it's no good anymore. And people would be like, salt can't lose its saltiness. If salt could lose its saltiness, it wouldn't be salt anymore. 
People wouldn't use salt to preserve things. People wouldn't use salt to flavor things if it lost its saltiness, right? It's like saying if dirt doesn't make you dirty anymore, it's not dirt. It's like dirt is always going to make you dirty. That's the very, that's, that's the very like innate uh, part of its being is that it makes you dirty, right? And the same with salt. And so what he's saying here is that if you're salt, you're salt. If you're in the kingdom of God, you're in the kingdom of God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus, and you always will be. Now, salt can be diluted. Salt can, some salt can be stronger. Uh, so you'll never stop being salt, but each one of us is going to be salt to different degrees. And each one of us in our Christian lives, as we follow Jesus, as we try to um, project the kingdom in the world, are going to do it in different ways. We're all going to be at a different spectrum uh, in our lives with Christ, but we're never not going to be a part of the kingdom, and we're never not going to be salt. And so that's a really important point of what, we're, of, of what Jesus is saying here. So be useful, uh, and everyone's going to have different degrees of usefulness, and we're all working towards the ideal of Christ, uh, but in the meantime, we're always going to be salt. And so the idea here is that uh, the disciples of Jesus should be living out the kingdom in a way that is felt and seen, that, we're, that they're going to be a, a useful uh, group of people, that they're going to be, have an influence in the world, that they're going to be impactful to those around them. And this idea of being, being felt and seen uh, ties into our next passage. So verses 14 through 16, let's take a look at those. So it says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's a really rich uh, history of imagery of light throughout the Bible. And it's, this, this imagery is a little bit clearer for us. It's a little bit easier to understand exactly what it is. But through the Old Testament, that, that imagery of light is used a lot. And so in Isaiah 42, verse 6, it says, I, the Lord, have called you to demonstrate my righteousness. I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people, Israel, as a symbol of my covenant with them, and you will be a light to guide the nations. And we just finished up a sermon series talking about how, uh, talking about a light in the darkness, that Jesus was coming into the darkness of the world, and he was that light. And throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, uh, oh, sorry, I, I'm, I'm reading this like it's my idea. It's actually not. Uh, well, I, have a, I have a quote here from a gentleman uh, with name of the year, Charles Quarles, uh, I believe is how you pronounce it. Uh, but uh, Charles Quarles says, throughout the prophecies of Isaiah, the shining light is a metaphor of the Messiah and his people fulfilling the missionary purpose of manifesting the glory of God among the nations. So the disciples in being associated with him we're kind of fulfilling this prophecy that was, com that was coming, that there was going to be this light that was going to be presented to the world, and it's not just Jesus who is the light. It's also his followers who are meant to be the light. So he says, I want you to be salt, I want you to be useful, and I want you to be light. I want you to be uh, showing the way. I want you to be present and seen. And in the same way that 
Jesus kind of used that quirky little idea of if salt loses its saltiness. He kind of has a similar idea here where he says, you don't light a candle and then cover it up. It doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Uh, and this is, the, this is, again, kind of that uh, kind of weird contrast that he's creating. He's like, so there, there's not flavorless salt and there isn't light that doesn't shed light. So if you're in the kingdom, you are salt and you are light. The degree of that light might not be the same for everyone. But if you are a light, you are, you are casting light, and that is not something that can change. And this idea of a city set on a hill, if you, if you put a city on a hill, you're not trying to hide yourself, right? If you're starting a brand new city and you're like, uh, I don't want to be attacked, I want to be safe, you're probably going to nuzzle it into uh, a valley or you're going to hide yourself somewhere. Uh, but if you want to be prominent, if you want to be assertive, if you want to be out there, you're going to put your city on a hill and everyone's going to see it and no one's going to be able to hide it. And this is what God is calling us into. He said, I want you to be seen and I want uh, you to be valuable in the world that you're living in. And, and we can say, well, how? And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, is that Jesus is going to go into very, very practical detail of different ways that we are going to influence the world around us. And so he's got... We've got a greater role to play than just living our lives out, uh, making as much money as we can, leaving money for our kids, retiring, and calling it at that. We have a much higher calling uh, as followers of Jesus. One of the things that is uh, pointed out here is that um, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. This is... A little bit tricky because not long from now, in Matthew chapter 6, if you want to look, look at the verse on the screen, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus, as part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, watch out, don't do your good deeds publicly, after just saying, make sure your good deeds are done publicly, um, to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Now, what is the difference between doing your good deeds well publicly and doing your good deeds poorly publicly? because it's really easy to do your good deeds poorly. And uh, this is a battle for me constantly to ask myself, why am I doing this? Am I doing this for me, or am I doing this to be seen? Uh, and that's the difference. And, and in that verse, in that passage, uh, verse 16, it says, uh, shine before others so that they may see your good works, and then what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And that's really the deciding factor of, of what your good deeds are. That's, that's kind of the litmus test that we need to give them. Am I doing this so that God is glorified? Or am I doing this so that I can be seen, so that I can be glorified, so that people pay attention to me? And, and that's, I mean, that's the battle for the follower of Jesus. That's one of the greatest battles that I have of constantly teasing out why am I doing this? And sometimes it's really easy, and sometimes it's a little harder. Uh, and... But, but this is something we constantly want to be, be analyzing in ourselves. It's that, that, yes, we want to be in the world and doing good. We want to be salt and light. We want to be seen. We want people to know we're there. We want to be influencing people's lives. And we want to be doing that for the kingdom and for God's glory and not for us. So just in closing... 
what, what we are as, as kingdom citizens, as those who are followers of Jesus, as believers, uh, our lives are not meant to be hidden and segregated. We're not meant to hide off, and that's not saying everyone has to be an extrovert. The introverts here are going, nope, that's not me. Uh, I will not be uh, out there. I will very much be hidden as much as possible. There's obviously ways that you can live out your life uh, as someone who doesn't like being in front of people uh, that is loving and caring and compassionate and showing the kingdom of God. Um, but we are meant to be something like salt that permeates. We're supposed to be something that, like salt, is useful. Uh, we're supposed to be something that is like salt and visible and seen and shining a light in the right direction. Uh, and each one of us, like I said, is going to be at different points of that, but never at any point are you not salt and light. And so, in light of this, the, the kingdom of God is, is here now in us, but it is not finished yet. It, it is not perfected. It's not accomplished. There is coming a day when the kingdom of God will fully be accomplished, but it's not today. And so, so in each of us, it's going to play out in small ways. It's not going to be played out perfectly. Because we have these, like, we have this, this, this body, this, this sinfulness, we have this, this flesh that's like, just like holding us back and saying, hey, you could get a lot of attention for doing this. Hey, you could make a lot of money for preaching the Bible. And that's something that Paul warns about. And you can, you can do all of these things for yourself. But that's not what God has called us to. And there's that temptation there. And that's like that, that, that partial kingdom that there, there's things holding the kingdom back from fully being realized, but one day it will be fully realized when Christ returns, and we look forward to that day, but until then, uh, we attempt to bring the kingdom a little bit by little bit to the people that we interact with each day by being salt and light in their lives. Let's close in prayer. My God, I want to thank you for calling us, for transforming us, not through the good deeds that we've done, uh, but we are being called into, um, we are called into yourself through faith. We are uh, then asked to fulfill your law. We are then asked to uh, be present in this world in a way that brings your kingdom further and more deeply in those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.